Thank you, Jordan, for reading our scripture tonight. Thank you for being here. We are looking tonight at Acts chapter 2. We began this lesson last week talking about what it means to be a member of the Lord's church. And tonight I want to continue with this theme, and I want us to look at what Luke records for us in Acts chapter 2. We'll look at some other verses as well as what uh, has been recorded in chapter 2. I'm very grateful for your presence tonight, thankful for the opportunity to be together, and uh, hopefully and prayerfully our time together will be beneficial. If you're visiting with us, as always, we invite you to come back. Very grateful to all who come our way on a regular basis, and uh, very thankful that you have chosen to come honoring us with your presence tonight. We are looking at Acts chapter 2. Last week in our study, we began talking about what it means to be a member of the Lord's church. When we talk about the Lord's church, we are emphasizing that distinctive body that Jesus bought with His blood, according to Acts chapter 20 at verse 28. It is the same body that Jesus affirmed in the presence of Peter that He would establish or that He would build. He promised to build it, and according to Acts chapter 2, He did indeed build that institution. In our study last week, we talked a little bit about the message that was preached on Pentecost Day in the city of Jerusalem. It was, as you well know, a Christ-centered message. The Apostle Peter, the other apostles, they accentuated the finished work of Jesus on Calvary's cross. They pointed out not only was Jesus crucified, but He was also raised from the dead, and He now resides in heaven. He is seated at the, at the right hand of God, and He is sitting upon a spiritual throne, the throne of David. We said not only was it a Christ-centered message, but it was a convicting message. The passage that Jordan read a moment ago. When the Apostle Peter said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Jesus is indeed the Lord over all lords, as Paul would say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. He is also the King over all kings. As a matter of fact, John in the Revelation in chapter 1 said that He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. When Peter said that Jesus is the Christ, what he was saying in effect is that He is the Lord's anointed one. He was the one of whom the prophets of old had foretold of. He was the one that Moses wrote about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He was the one that God said to Abraham through his lineage, all families, all nations of the earth would be blessed. He was the one who would ultimately descend through the tribe of Judah. He would come through the family of David. And as I said a moment ago, he would sit upon his throne. He reigns today in heaven at the right hand of Almighty God. Now, following this great declaration, the text tells us that when they heard this, that is when they heard this divine message, they were cut to the heart. I want to just very quickly point out, Peter and the other apostles, as we said last week, they had been endowed with a baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit. What they spoke was directed by God in heaven. In other words, as Peter, well as Luke points out, 
They spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so the Holy Spirit superintended what they had to say in the first century. In the first century, the gospel was in man. It was in, as Paul said, earthen treasures. Today, however, the gospel is contained in what we call the Bible, isn't it? We have, as Peter said, all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude said in Jude 3. So when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in the first century, that work was in terms of revelation. We have revelation today. You remember Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 13, Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of Himself. Whatever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Well, the Lord Jesus, affirming there, the Holy Spirit would guide those superintended men in all things pertaining to truth, right? And so today... We have God's holy and inspired Word. The Holy Spirit speaks and operates to us today through what? Through His inspired Word. That's why Paul would say, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's why he would say in Colossians 3, verse 17, that all Scripture, or rather he would say that whatever we do in word or deed, we're to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You well know that Acts chapter 2, verse 38 has literally been a battleground for centuries over salvation. Many, many people, and I would imagine that most people, religiously speaking, would affirm salvation is in Christ Jesus. Paul taught that, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Where we differ, however, has to do with how we get into Christ and appropriate all of those blessings. Now there are some that will tell you, and I'm going to read Acts 2 verse 38 in just a moment. But there are some that will, there are some that will say, well, we are saved by grace and grace alone. Well, I would agree that we are saved by grace. The Bible teaches that. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, By grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast or glory. But what they fail to understand, what people fail to understand is, wherever God's grace goes, it is always accompanied by divine teaching. God's grace is in Christ Jesus. The question then, how do we get into Christ? So when they asked Peter and the other apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You remember back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus said that they, that they would receive the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So these men are saying exactly what God wanted them to say regarding the kingdom and entrance into this divine institution. So here's what Peter said. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said a minute ago, and I want to look at a couple of things here. I said a minute ago that there are a lot of folks that say, well, it's by grace and grace alone. We are in no way negating the importance of God's grace. I can go back to the Old Testament. I read about Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God decreed He was going to destroy the world by means of a flood. 
And God ultimately told Noah to build an ark. He gave the very specific instructions concerning the building of that ark. That ark was for the saving of his household, as the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Noah then complied with the will of God. As a result of that, he and his family members were what? They were saved. Do you remember in Joshua chapter 7, with regard to the city of Jericho, God said to Joshua in the long ago, I have given you the land. You remember that? That's grace, isn't it? But then God, in a very specific way, told them how they would enjoy the blessings of that land or of Jericho. Told them exactly what they needed to do in order to obtain the city of Jericho. They did that, and guess what? God gave them the land, just as He had promised. Now, having said that, let me just read for you some statements that, to me, are interesting, particularly in light of what the Bible says, because there are a lot of folks in the religious, in the religious world that will say something other than what Peter said. They'll say something other than what Jesus said. They'll say something other than what Paul said. Do you remember what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11? If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I have no right nor authority to stand in this pulpit or anywhere else and tell, something, and tell someone to do something other than what the apostles instructed. Again, we're talking about the apostles' doctrine. Now in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said that baptism is for the remission of sins. Some, as you well know, say that we are baptized because our sins have already been forgiven. And really, their argument hinges upon the Greek preposition ice, translated for, in Acts 2, verse 38. Let me read for you what John MacArthur in, in the MacArthur Study Bible says regarding Acts 2, verse 38, and that little phrase, for the remission of sins. This might better be translated because of the remission of sins. Now listen to what he said. Baptism does not produce forgiveness and cleansing from sin. I want you to just hold on to that thought for a minute. Let me read it again. Acts 2, verse 38, where Peter said that we are to be baptized for the remission of sins, he says it would be better translated because of the remission of sins. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 26, verse 28. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And here's what He said. This is the new covenant of my blood, which is shed for the many, listen to him, for the remission of sins. Grammatically, it is exactly the same. Exactly. Jesus saying that he would shed his blood, that his covenant would be established, that his blood would be shed for the remission of sins. I want to ask you a question. Was Jesus' blood shed because our sins were already forgiven? Fair question, isn't it? Now you tell me, and I really believe that John MacArthur is a better student of Scripture 
than what he has said here regarding Acts 2.38. He knows better than that. The problem, however, is religious bias comes into play. Now, Jesus shed his blood so that we might enjoy the blessings of redemption. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shed blood of Jesus, we would be lost. And yet he established his covenant through the shedding of that blood. The Greek preposition, ice, is found 1,750 times in the New Testament. Think about that for a minute. 1,750 times in the New Testament. In every single instance, it always points forward. It never looks backward. So you're telling me that in 1,749 times, it looks forward, but in this one instance, it looks backward. Would you say that's, would you say that's careful exegesis? Would you say that's biblical? 1,750 times the Greek preposition, ice, is used. It always looks forward. It never looks backward. And yet this fellow says that it could better be translated because of the remission of sins. Let me read for you another statement. Many of us are familiar with Adrian Rogers. Adrian Rogers preached in, in the city of Memphis for probably 30-plus years. He continues to preach and teach through radio and television, though he's been deceased nearly 10 years. In a sermon titled, Bible Baptism, here's what he says. There are three biblical motives of baptism. And he asks this question, why be baptized? He said, there is a message to convey the gospel. Number one, first reason, every baptism preaches the gospel. Number two, the very things that baptism pictures, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, are what bring conviction to the hearts of people. Now I want you to listen to what he says thirdly, and this is really key. There is a mandate to complete the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we know Jesus there instructed, Go therefore make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, etc. He said, We are to say, quote, Yes, Lord, unquote. And then let me just continue on with the quotation. We must remember that Jesus Christ has all authority in heaven and in earth. And He has commanded us, and then in parenthesis, he has not suggested that we go and teach, making disciples, and baptizing. But I'm not done. Here's what he says by way of conclusion. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Black and white. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Now wait a minute. You just said that Jesus commanded to be baptized, that that is not a suggestion. Now I want to ask, and I want to ask this in a, I guess in a kind way. We talk about loving the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to do His will and being submissive to His authority. 
And we want to talk about the fact that He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then for somebody to turn right around and negate exactly what the Lord Jesus said. Is that honest? What gives you the right, what gives anyone else the right to wave off what the Son of God said? I don't care who you are. I don't care where you preach. I don't care what you think of yourself. Look, if you don't preach the truth of Almighty God, you're going to lead people astray. They're going to be lost. Not only will they be lost, you'll be lost. Here's what Jesus said. He that believeth, number one, and is baptized, number two, shall be saved, number three. That is a quotation. That's not my embellishment of what the Son of God said. That's not my interpretation of what the Son of God. That is an exact quotation of what Jesus said. So you tell me, what gives people the right to say, you know what, you really don't need to be baptized into Christ. I said this is a battleground. It is. There are people in our world that will fight you tooth and nail over being baptized into Jesus Christ. You need to stick with what Jesus said. We better stick with what Peter said. Now, let me read another quotation for you. Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley, on his program, In Touch, titled Baptism, January 29, 2013. Here's what he said. Although a person's sins are forgiven based on faith in Jesus alone, Baptism is an important symbol of death to our old way of living and a new beginning in Christ. What people say is baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Jesus said? Is that what Peter said? So what gives me the right to say something other than what the Lord said or His apostles? Look, there are a lot of people in our world today. They have been misled. They have been taught something that is not biblical from start to finish. Listen to what Charles Stanley says with regard to the sinner's prayer. He said, tell God that you're willing to trust Him for salvation. He said, you can tell Him in your own words or use this simple prayer. And here's what he says. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sins and save me from eternal separation from God. By faith, I accept your work and death on the cross as sufficient payment for my sins. Thank you for providing the way for me to know you and to have a relationship with my Heavenly Father. Through faith in you, I have eternal life. Thank you also for hearing my prayers and loving me unconditionally. Please give me the strength, wisdom, and determination to walk in the center of your will. In Jesus' name, amen. And then he goes on to say, if you've just prayed this prayer, congratulations. You've received Christ as your Savior and have made the best decision you will ever make. Now let me just pause there. Is that what Peter said? Is that what Peter said on Pentecost Day? So what gives somebody the right to say something other than what Peter said on Pentecost Day? Didn't he have the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Yes, he did. Did he know what he was talking about? You better believe he did. So why then should some Johnny come lately come on the scene and say, you know what, you don't really need to do that. It's not that important. I can tell you why. I can tell you why. It's called 
prejudice, bias. Sometimes our conviction, we're more convicted to what our denomination teaches than what the Bible teaches. Didn't Peter say, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God? Somebody says, well, it really doesn't matter. It's not that big of a deal. It's a pretty big deal if you ask me. We're talking about eternal salvation, either being lost or saved. Turn with me for just a moment and look at Acts chapter 9. You remember in Acts chapter 9, the Lord appeared to Saul of Tarsus. He was on the road to Damascus. Damascus, about 170 miles or so north of Jerusalem. He's on his, he's, he is on his way there to bind men and women, to bring them bound back to Jerusalem. As he makes his way, the Bible tells us the Lord appeared to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 4. And he said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then look at verse 6. The Bible says, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, arise and go into the city, and you will be told, listen to what he says, you will be told what you must do. What you must do. Saul arose from the ground when his eyes were opened. Saw no one, but they led him by a hand and brought him into Damascus. Now look at verse 9. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now drop down, look at verse 10. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in the vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And here's what the Lord said, Arise, go to the street called Straight. Inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. For three days this man has been fasting. He's been praying to God. Ananias arrives. When Ananias arrived, what did he say to him? Do you remember? Did he say, Saul, stand up. You're saved. Everything's good. Let's go on our way. No, he didn't say that, did he? Remember what, you remember what Paul said regarding that conversion story? He said, when Ananias arrived, Ananias said, what are you waiting on? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now think about that for a minute. Ananias told Saul of Tarsus to arise, be baptized, and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. I mentioned a moment ago what John MacArthur said in his study Bible. I don't know how many millions of study Bibles have been printed, but I suspect a lot of people in North America have a copy of his study Bible. And what was it he said? Let me just read that quotation for you again. Baptism does not produce forgiveness and cleansing from sin. Now I want to ask you a question. Who's right? Ananias or John MacArthur? Who's right? Charles Stanley or what Peter said and what Jesus said? Who's right? What Jesus said, the apostles said, or Adrian Rogers? What Jesus said, what the apostles said. I mentioned a moment ago that there are those that say, you know what, you're saved by grace and grace alone. To those same people, 
who say that if you're baptized into Christ, then that's a work. Well, isn't belief a work? Didn't Jesus say, John 6, verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent? Is repentance not a work? Would they say that repentance is not essential to salvation? Remember in Jonah chapter 3, God had decreed He was going to destroy the city of Nineveh. Jonah goes out, preaches and teaches to those people. And the Bible says in verse 10, when God saw their works, that they turned from their evil ways. It's called repentance. It's a work. Baptism is a work, but it is not a work of man. It's not a work of merit. God, if anybody's working, God is. When He surgically cuts away sin. Now, I want, to just, I want to just try to sum this up very quickly. When we talk about New Testament baptism and what Peter had to say on Pentecost Day, and look, this is the ground floor of the church. Could God have said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads, recite this prayer, and you'll, you'll be accepted into the fold of God. Could God have done that? Yes, He could have. But that's, not, that's not what God did. God said, here's exactly what I want you to do. It is a template for salvation until the second coming of Jesus. So, baptism. Baptism stands between the sinner and salvation. How do I know that? Mark 16, 16. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Baptism stands between the sinner and the remission of sins. How do I know that? Listen to what Peter said. Repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In other words, so your sins can be forgiven. Baptism stands between the sinner and the washing away of sins. Acts 22, 16. We looked at that just a moment ago. Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism stands between the sinner and the church. How do I know that? Acts 2, verse 47. The Bible tells us that God adds the saved to the church. Well, where are the saved? They're in Christ. How'd they get into Christ? They were baptized into Christ. And once in Christ, God then put them in the church. And that is the community of the saved. Ephesians 5, verse 23. He's the Savior of the body of the church. So, when people try to tell us, you know what, you don't have to be baptized, what we need to do is say, now wait a minute. In a kind, loving way, Ask this question. What's the Bible say? It's fair enough, isn't it? What's the Bible say? Look, I'm not trying to be argumentative. I'm not trying to be harsh. But when you think about the multiplied millions of people that are taught something other than what Peter taught on Pentecost Day and the other apostles, when you think about how many people are told to do something other than what Jesus said, or what Peter said, or rather Paul said, or etc., then we need to teach on it. And we need to say, look, this is what the Bible says. Now, very quickly, turn to Acts 16. Look at Acts chapter 16. Sometimes there are those in the religious world that will cite the Philippian jailer. You remember Paul and Silas had been in Philippi, they're imprisoned. At midnight, they're praying, singing praises to God. An earthquake occurs. 
the prison doors are opened, the chains are loosened from the prisoner's ankles and feet. In verse 27, the Bible says that the keeper of the prison, awaking from his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul called with a loud voice. He said, do yourself no harm, we're all here. And then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Here's what he asked. The Bible says he brought, the text says they brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, look at verse 31. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Now, there are a lot of folks that will say, okay, there it is right there. That's proof. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But we don't need to stop there. Look at verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Why do you think, when he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Why do you think he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and your household, and you'll be saved? This guy was a pagan. He didn't believe in God. He didn't believe in the Lord. And so they had to lay a foundation, didn't they? So you think about you lay a foundation and then you build upon that. So what did he do? He said you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he taught the word of the Lord to him. Look at verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes. Immediately he and all his family were what? Were baptized. Why were they baptized? To be saved, Mark 16, 16. Why were they, why were they baptized? To enjoy the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. Why were they baptized? so that their sins might be washed away, Acts 22, 16. Why were they baptized into Christ? To become a member of the church of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, because that's where the saved reside. The psalmist many years ago said, the sum of your word is truth. We can't just pick and choose various passages of Scripture. What we have to do is look at the sum totality of God's Word and then, beginning draw, and then begin drawing our conclusions, don't we? And so, the jailer, his household, they were baptized into Christ. The Bible says in verse 34, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and rejoiced. Why? Because he was saved. You remember, now back up and look at Acts chapter 8. Before our time's gone, Acts chapter 8. Philip has been in Samaria preaching the gospel. The Bible says in verse 5, he preached Christ to them. In verse 12, the text says they believe Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. Both men and women were baptized. So he preaches the gospel. As a result of that proclamation, they obey the gospel, become members of the body of Christ. In verse 26, we read, Philip coming in contact with a man who was a eunuch. He had been to Jerusalem to worship. He's headed back home. He is an officer in charge of the treasury of the queen. And he's reading Isaiah 53. As a matter of fact, he's got a scroll. He's reading about the suffering servant, the Messiah. When Philip came in contact with this man, he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? And this man replied by saying, how can I except some man guide me? Now note if you would what the text says. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter like a sheep or a lamb before its, before its shearer. 
is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip. And he said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet speak? Of himself or of some other? Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth, beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. What did they do on Pentecost Day? They preached a Christ-centered message, didn't they? It was a convicting message, wasn't it? So Philip preaches Jesus unto this man. Verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, wait a minute. Where in that text did you read about Philip discussing the importance of baptism? Anything said about it? How do you know anything about being baptized into Christ? Because to preach the man is to preach the plan, isn't it? If you're going to preach Jesus that He is the way, the truth, and the life, you've got to tell people how to become one of His disciples, don't you? Just stands to reason. So this man, this man, as they travel down the road, he said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He commands the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. One other, one other example, very quickly. A common example. How many times to say, I hear what you're saying with regard to baptism. But what about the thief on the cross? What about him? What about the thief on the cross? Is it possible that the thief on the cross was baptized according to John's baptism? You know, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 3 that all those in Jerusalem, Judea, and the region around about there went out to John, were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Is it possible this man had submitted to John's baptism? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But you can't say conclusively that he'd never been baptized because maybe he had. Second reason, second thought. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 10, but that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Did Jesus have the power to forgive him? Yes, he did. Why? Because he was the Son of God. He had all authority. He had the right to forgive him, didn't he? So, that would be a second thing I would point out. A third, and to me, the most compelling of the arguments is this. That man died under the Mosaic dispensation, didn't he? He wasn't living under the law of Christ. When Jesus died on Calvary, He nailed the law of Moses to the cross. It was taken out of the way. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. This man didn't need to be baptized as we do today. Why? Because he lived under a different covenant, a different law. We're under the law of Christ today. It's like mixing apples and oranges, isn't it? A lot of folks want to say, well, what about the thief on the cross? Look, the thief on the cross has no relevance whatsoever to us today. Not one, not one bit. So, it all goes back to this. What does the Bible say? And what does it mean to be a member of the Lord's church? The way to become a member of the body of Christ 
is by believing that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe in the efficacy of the blood of Jesus. What is it that ultimately washes away our sins? It's the blood of Jesus. But baptism is where we contact that blood, isn't it? So we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are baptized into Jesus Christ, whereby we contact the blood of Christ. And I want people to, I want people, I want all of us to just remember this, or to think about this for a minute. The blood of Jesus, it flows in His body, doesn't it? Just like your blood flows in your body. So if you're not in the body, do you have access to the blood? No. So, we believe in Jesus Christ, we're baptized into Christ, we contact the blood of Christ, and we're added to the body of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. It is as simple as ABC. It really is. It might be that you're here tonight, maybe you've got questions. Maybe you haven't understood some of the points that I've tried to make tonight. If that be the case, then I would encourage you, please see me after services. I'll be happy to answer any questions that you have. If you're here tonight and you have not been baptized into Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do what Peter said to do, because that's the only way to be saved. I want to encourage you to do what Jesus said to do, because that's the only way to be saved. It's not what I think. It's not what somebody else thinks. It's what the Bible teaches. The Bible's always right, isn't it? So if you're here tonight, you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, you would be baptized into Christ. Look, God will put you in the church. It's where all spiritual blessings reside, Ephesians 1.3. If you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2, verse 10. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful to His cause, I encourage you to come home as we stand and sing.